and welcome to the 42nd episode of Roots and Hoots, a podcast series produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Join us in celebrating stories of the success, resilience, and cultures of Indigenous peoples across Canada. Indigenous community facilitator, survivor, and host Gordon Spence brings you along on his journey as we learn about guests' contribution through art, music, business, politics, education, and community leadership. Indigenous peoples have always affected positive change throughout Canada. Roots and Hoots aims to create a better understanding of Indigenous peoples and their cultures in order to bridge the path forward on truth and reconciliation in Canada. If these stories interest or inspire you and you would like to hear more, please like, subscribe, and leave a review. Podcasts are available through Podbean, Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and can also be found through our website at www.legacyofhope.ca. Today's guest is Dolores Peltier-Corky. Dolores is an Anishinaabe Kwe of the Three Fires Confederacy, which includes the Ojibwe, Adawa, and Potawatomi nations from Okamakan unceded territory located on beautiful Manitoulin Island. Dolores works with Gingul Nonprofit Housing Corporation as a tenant relations officer, and in this episode shares about the behind the scenes of this important work. Since arriving in Ottawa in 1997, Dolores has been active within the Indigenous community, volunteering her time on various committees and boards, such as Minwashin Lodge and the Adawa Native Friendship Centre. Dolores has been very active in organizing such events as the Children and Youth Powwow, Adawa's Food for Friends Christmas Hamper Campaign, and the annual Arts and Crafts Sale. As an active member of the board with the City for All Women Initiative, Dolores brings her Indigenous perspective to a table of diverse women to create a more inclusive city for all. Dolores learned from her mother's example of the importance of volunteerism, and we are so grateful to learn from her in this episode. Please enjoy. Hello and welcome to this podcast of Indigenous Roots and Roots. I'm your host, Gordon Spence, and today my guest is Dolores Peltier-Corky. Hello and welcome, Dolores. How are you today? Honey, bonjour. Listen. I guess I guess that's uh, that's in Ojibwe. Uh, you're saying I'm fine. I am. Okay, it's good. To I hear. haven't been able to use my language, so I'm learning. That's right. Yeah, language is so important these days. There's this whole language revitalization going on. We recently did a uh, did a project on language revitalization, so it's kind of sweeping across the country right now. Maybe you can start just by telling us a little bit about your uh, your family background and, and your cultural identity and where you come from. Sure. Well, first of all, I'd like to just say, Ani bonjour, Dolores Dejnakas, Wikwam Kong Don Jabar, Megwa Adwan Dao. Wawashkesh Dodem. And what I said there is that um, giving telling who I am, giving my name, my my Christian name. And where I come from, I'm an Anishinaabekwe from Wikwemkong, unceded territory, and that I currently live in Ottawa. Um, my my uh, clan name is uh, Wawashkesh, which is deer, but I don't have a spirit name. So um, it's important that we introduce ourselves uh, from our, our nation uh, in the language. And this is one of the things that I've learned over the past couple of years so I'm finding it important to introduce myself in that in that way whenever I meet um, new people or in a meeting setting. So um, I was born not born on the in the on the reserve, but I was born and raised on the reserve. 
from a family of eight brothers and three sisters. Two had passed away before I was born, so I only had one sister to uh, grow up with, but she was 10 years older than me. I had both my parents. I was very fortunate to have them till they were uh, well in their 90s. So that was a real blessing for me. Right. However, my father had worked off reserve throughout my childhood because he had to support the family. So he worked for Hydro for a period of time. And he also worked for E.B. Eddy, which was working in the bush, cutting trees. So he worked in that job till I was probably well in my 20s. So I didn't really see him much. I only saw him on the weekends when he came home. So my mother was the one that raised us all. I have, you know, brothers that were and a sister that moved away by the time that, you know, the, the smaller kids that us, my brothers and I were growing up. So we really didn't have them in our lives. So uh, they were there coming home for family events, Christmas, special holidays, summers, etc. But I felt that I really only grew up with maybe half, half of my brothers because uh, and my sister who was away for many, many years. But when I was four years old, I wanted to run away. <laughs> I wanted to run away and move, you know, move with my sister. And I think it was just because I didn't, uh, something that had happened at home that uh, I didn't want to be there. Maybe something that I didn't get to have or get to do. So I just said, well, that's it. I'm packing up my suitcase and I'm moving away. I'm going to go live with my sister. So I managed to uh, head down to my aunt's place, which was just down the road. And I ended up staying there for the day. So (laughs) (laughs) that's a story I'll never forget because yeah. my aunties and you know family members always remind me about that and uh yeah it's it's a it's a, it's a story your, that i'll never forget you actually took your suitcase yeah i took my suitcase <laughs> i don't know what it was but it was a little something to carry my clothes in <laughs> i was a rookie one of guys probably made a smile but i did the same thing too once when i was a kid and i i i, I got upset i can't remember what it was for I, I took off. I didn't take a suitcase or anything like that, but I just told my grandmother I'm, I'm leaving. And then it started raining, so I ended up sleeping under a, a railroad car. <laughs> and I think when it was rail, you know, railway, uh, there was uh, those things that carry cargo on the on the tracks. Oh. And I'm hanging out there for a couple of hours, and then went home with my tail between my legs, <laughs> so to speak. So we have something in common. Yes, and I think every other, probably every child has made an attempt to run away from home at one time, you know, because of whatever happens. Sometimes we get, we're a little spoiled, we don't get away or something, and we get mad, and I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I'm leaving. <laughs> Tell us, okay, and I'm just going to uh, come back to the uh, what I was going to ask you about your job, but let me uh, just, just jump up ahead a little bit. Uh, when you were a child, well, you're taught, uh, you know, you speak your traditional language. You probably have a great understanding of your culture. How, how uh, did you speak your language in the house all the time? Or did you speak it like your, your parents spoke, spoke to you all the time in the household? Uh, was it like your first language that you spoke all the time? Uh, about in terms of your culture, did you out on the land at all uh, learning about traditional ways? As children, we didn't speak uh, our language very often at that time. From what I remember, 
this was when they started bringing in the schools, uh, the uh, Indian day schools on the reserves. And they really emphasize, emphasize that we as children learn the English language. Right. Our parents and family members spoke the language at home. However, I didn't really grow. I feel that I didn't really grow up with, you know, a lot of the culture. My parents, well, my mom especially, was very involved in the Catholic Church. And therefore, we didn't get to grow up with the traditions or the knowledge of our culture in the sense that we would think that being out on the land or out trapping, hunting, that sort of thing. We didn't do trapping in our area, but there was fishing and hunting. But as a child, I remembered many of our community members would go out. And I remember going out as a child picking sweetgrass, but not knowing the importance of why we were picking sweetgrass. Crafts were made from uh, birch bark trees. You know, they would go and cut the birch bark from the trees, bring them all home, flatten them out, and then they'd be piled up in the back of a vehicle. And I remember the ladies back home, her name was Ajin, my Auntie Annie, another lady, um, I can't remember her first name, but they would always be making crafts with birch bark and sweet grass and porcupine quills. Mm-hmm. So that was my what I identified as culture. And using the land, using the resources from the land in order to survive. So with these crafts that they made, they were more of a livelihood to keep them sustained, to buy food, to buy groceries, you know, to buy um, items for their home. So I, I find that, you know, when we talked about culture, I always thought about, you know, ceremonies and powwows, et cetera. Our powwow back home started in 1960, and from what I understand, it was more of a tourist tourist industry of inviting people to come and watch our community members come wow. and dance, and they started it at the arena. They would decorate the arena with a lot of cedar trees and a stage where they would have performances. Um, community would gather every year at that annual powwow and it was more competition but I didn't see that as a child growing up it I thought it was just something that was uh, quite normal to you know it was an exciting time it was a big you know a big event that was happening in our community so in terms of tradition and culture it wasn't anything that Growing up, you know, the way we think of being in a teepee and having ceremonies and sweats, etc. I didn't have that. But we did do a lot of berry picking, understanding that when the berries do have, like when they start out, so strawberries were always the first. And then the raspberries and blueberries, those are the three types of berries that we had that we we picked as kids. And, you know, our parents would take us out, you know, your your older siblings or relatives, you would go out with them to pick these berries. And then the importance of preserving them, because you knew in the wintertime you would need that food to uh, feed, feed the family, you know, whether it would be through dumplings or jam or or something else maybe a dessert uh, so it was important to have those foods especially you know harvest time as well too when it came to corn and then gardening was very important in our in our day growing up as well too so 
I really didn't think about that a lot when I was growing up, but now as an adult, I really feel that there was a reason why we did what we did. And knowing that how important the land is for us, and especially with language as well, too. I didn't really grow up knowing the language. I do know some. I speak very little of it, but not as well as my siblings. I probably am the only one that doesn't speak the language as well as, you know, my brothers and my sister do. Because they, 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 they surround themselves with um, the language every single day, being on the reserve. Whereas for me, I didn't have that. Right. Yeah. You have to pretty much hear it every day to, you know, to continue to learn it, to continue to grow with it, and to, to maintain it, you know, in your life, in the, your, your day-to-day life. I was going to ask you about that uh, in terms of growing up on the reserve. Did you go to school on the reserve? I did. Okay. I did, right up until grade eight. Growing up on the reserve, what was the feeling about being an Indigenous person, being around non-Indigenous people, like white people? Was there animosity? Did you, how did you feel about being a, a Native person? I mean, for us, many of us growing up, and we were often, you know, that's a tease, but, you know, made fun of and told all kinds of names. So it kind of made us feel ashamed of who we were and kind of shied away from, you know, speaking our language. Was it anything like that while you were growing up? Absolutely. Because the... The town next to us, that was where we did, you know, our parents did our, the grocery shopping or shopping for any of our household items, clothing, etc. So having to go with them and not really understanding that how they were being treated, uh, you know, in terms of buying certain items in the grocery store and the discrimination you, you know, you, you felt... And when you even tried to speak to your parents about it, they really didn't want to emphasize or to explain what was happening. So as a child, you really didn't understand the racism, the stereotypes, you know, that you felt as a, you know, as a, as a First Nations person growing up on the reserve, you always made to feel like you're, you're, you're not worthy, you know, and you're like a second class citizen and you feel like, you know, you feel dirty you know like you're not clean enough for them you know and you look at the color of their skin it's so so white and then you look at us and you know we're brown and we're we're people of the earth i find that you know we 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 work with the land you know so that's part of us and who we are and then you know when you're amongst people who are not of the same you just feel so different and you're not you don't find yourself up to par with them you know you don't feel as equal so therefore, you know, the, the shame that you feel, the, you know, the, the ridicule, uh, because you're not doing something the way it's supposed to be done. And then knowing that if your parents are people that say, let it be, don't worry about it. Mono is the word that they would always say, you know, it's just, it's just saying, let it be. How does that make you feel? You know, you can't really stand up for what you truly believe in, you know, and 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 therefore you you tend to carry that with you in your adult life. And that's what I felt, you know, it's like because Mm -hmm. that's just the way our parents were. It's just don't worry about it. Just let it go. So that's where it was really difficult for me. 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's pretty universal in uh, with the kids that grew up around, you know, uh, like in uh, non, non-Indigenous schools, environments. I think that's pretty common right across, you know, Canada uh, with all the First Nations people. I don't find it so much with Inuit because they were uh, kind of uh, isolated, you know. They really didn't mingle. They didn't really with other, like they, they pretty much stayed up in the Arctic and, and you know, as, as little children, they went to, to local schools and that was only recently as well. So I don't really, and also, I also find that like my grand, my grand, my mother, my mother's side, maybe not so much you, but she doesn't seem to, she didn't seem to have any kind of racist, like hatred toward white people or for, for I don't know why, but mainly because I think she didn't go to school. She didn't go to a formal school with, with non-Indigenous people, so she didn't really felt the racism that we felt, you know, growing up and being around uh, non-Native people, uh, non-Native kids. It's been kind of a, I hate to say, but it's kind of like a disease that's, that's kind of stays and lingers, you know, until you kind of deal with it some, somewhere along the line as you, as you become an adult. I wanted to ask you a little bit about many people that are listening to this podcast probably are not aware of where your community is. Uh, Manitoulin Island, they probably have, some people probably will look it up on the map and say, well, there it is in uh, Ontario, close to Sudbury. Tell us a bit about your community. What What's there? And, uh, like, it's a big island, right? I mean, so how many, are there other reserves on the island, other towns on that island? I think island, like, you think it's small, but Manitoulin Island is quite a big island, right? It's a large island. It's a little island's amongst a big island, lots of lakes. Uh, it's, it's, I don't know the square footage off the top of my head, but we're the largest reserve on the, uh, the eastern side of Manitoulin Island, which is called Minido Minising Spirit Island. And it takes about two hours to drive from one end to the other end of the island. So it's, it's, it's a large island. And there are six i believe six reserves on that island and then we share the island with other non-indigenous communities uh which are the, which there's quite a few of them across the island and in terms of my community the population back then i would say when i was growing up you know it was 2000 3000 but has since grown up to about 8 9000 Half of the population don't live on the reserve. The band membership is about eight, 9,000. And we also have part of the reserve on the mainland, which is called Point Grandine, which is uh, just a bit south of Killarney. And Killarney's uh, around the uh, mainland, around north of Perry Sound. So we have quite an extensive amount of land in and around Manitoulin Island. And also there's land claims that are being done at this time with regards to some of the smaller islands in and around the area. Mm-hmm. I haven't really done any research in terms of the history, but I'm that's one thing I'm slowly learning about as well, too, and finding out exactly who my people are and where I come from. And that was something growing up I never really, really immersed myself in. Yeah. One of the things I've heard about your reserve with Mekong they always say unseated. Now, what does that mean when you say unseated? 
territory and see it preserved. It just means that they've never given up the rights to the uh, the land nor the the treaties. So therefore, it is one of the area of land that uh, still belongs to the people. It's not something that can be taken by the government, I guess, is maybe the easiest way to say it. Yeah. Uh, so therefore, it, it belongs to our, our people. So the reserve itself is title still remains with the people? Mm-hmm. As far as I know, really? that's my, my wow. understanding of it. I'm sure wow. that there's somebody that could correct me on that as well, too. Yeah. So like I said, I, I'm, I'm still learning about the, the treaties um, and the the land surrounding my my community and the territory around it, the Robinson-Huron Treaty, and also the lands that surround Manitoulin Island as well. Right. Interesting place. I must uh, like to visit it, visit there sometime. I always yeah. encourage people, if they ever have a chance to visit my community, it's a very, very beautiful community. The economic development is really growing. There's a, a one of the things I should mention is that recently Wigwam Kong Tourism had just won an award for um, one of the ideal spots, areas to visit, you know, in recognition of tourism. We have what's called the Montpoy Trails. There's a marsh that they've, you know, preserving the, the lands, the extinct species that are, you know, we don't see anymore. So they're trying to preserve that area for the animals and um, the birds, et cetera, you know, that, so that live in that yeah. area. Yeah, yeah, it's so important. That, like uh, development kind of does that. Uh, you kind of, you're lucky in that way that there's no major land development here, no major like hydro projects happening in your, in your area, no pipelines going through. And that really, you know, disrupts the, the ecosystem, disrupts the plants and animals that, that live in an area. So. But you know, you know, it's good that people like your your band is is doing you know taking measures to preserve what what it has there. So I wanted to also ask you a little bit about what you do. I know I work with you at Kingmill Housing, and uh, maybe tell just talk a little bit about your work there, and so that you know, our audience understands what Kingmill Nonprofit Housing Corporation does and what you do there. In 1986, Gigno Nonprofit Housing Corporation was created through a volunteer board. And it was known that many people had been moving from small communities, reserves, to urban centers to find employment, to have, a, have an education, and also for a better life. And, and, and also, you know, just moving away from your community was just something that people have always done since I can remember back in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, 70s. So therefore, there was a great need for housing for our people. And I started working here in 1997. It just so happened that, you know, I wanted to move to Ottawa. I've always loved Ottawa. So I thought, well, this was my opportunity through a relative of mine who so helped me, um, and you know, which I'm very grateful for that she helped me get here and to find this job opportunity. And I started out as an administrative assistant, which is not really my, you know, the background that I have experience in. I came from, you know, 10 years of working in finance. 
And therefore I thought, well, I have to start somewhere. I can't really be picky. I need a job. I have to survive. I have to take care of my, my, my son who was a teenager at the time. So I took the job thinking that I will move towards working in finance, you know, and, and I thought maybe I would be the finance officer eventually. However, it didn't work out that way. I had an opportunity to fill uh, on an acting position for a tenant relations officer. And so I thought, well, you know, with my background and my, my experience and just my own personality, my characteristics, you know, I thought, well, maybe I'm better with people. So I um, agreed to work in that field of tenant relations officer and working with you, Gord. I mean, the, the time, you know, when you were here, it was a good experience to learn about our people and who we are serving as, you know, housing workers. Right. You know, housing as a right, you know, we want to make sure that everybody has a roof over their head. But unfortunately, that's not the way it works. Uh, you know, some people are couch surfing, you know, are homeless that just don't have a place to live because for whatever reason, if it's, you know, the rent is too high, people getting evicted from their units for whatever reason. There's all kinds of factors when you're working in when you're working in housing. So. Working with the tenants, you know, you want to make sure that they are paying their rent on time, being a good tenant, and being a good neighbor. And one of the things that I have found over the years is that where we come from in our communities and what we've been taught, you know, those are learned behaviors. We bring that with us here to the city. So sometimes these actions don't really help us, you know, as we're moving forward to, to be a good tenant. You know, sometimes it's, it's difficult to learn the rules of the, the white man, you know, and, and follow the rules that in terms of bylaws, you know, there's so many things that we're unaware of. So some people just don't understand that and, you know, making sure you get along with your neighbors you know, you have people living below you, above you, you know, you, you know, making sure that um, you have to stay quiet between the hours of 11 and 7. So all of those things that, you know, I work with for the past 25 years has really made me understand a little bit more about the people that we work with. First Nations, Inuit, Métis, we all come from different backgrounds. So not necessarily what I've learned to do it's going to be the same for the next person that comes in as a tenant. We all come from places where, you know, sometimes it was good, sometimes it wasn't. So, you know, as my, as my, my responsibility and in my job, I have to make sure that you understand as a tenant that these are the rules that you have to follow when you're renting from us as a landlord. The biggest issue is, uh, you know, sometimes people have financial situations that they have no control over and therefore rent is, um, you know, becomes an issue where they can't pay rent. So how are we going to make sure that these individuals pay their rent on time and paying it every month? And how do we go after them to, you know, make sure that they pay the rent? So nonetheless, we have to use the landlord tenant board process which means right. having to take them for a hearing and say, okay, well, you know, we're not in the business of eviction. So therefore, you know, we have to come up with some sort of a payment plan that, you know, I want you to have this housing, but you also have to understand it's your responsibility to pay your rent. 
and, and, and sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, just depending on where that person is, is in their life. You know, are they ready to accept that responsibility? Or is there something else going on in their life that's causing these obstacles to, to happen where they can't pay their rent on time? Yeah. We have a great number of people who are uh, overrepresented uh, in the homeless population a lot of mental health challenges, a lot of addictions. So therefore, you know, we, we, you know, we try to help those who can help themselves, but at the same time, we have to be there to support our people as well too, at the same time. I mean, we're in a business to house people, but at the same time, it's difficult to help those who are not ready for that step. Right. Yeah. Not everybody is ready, like you said, and uh, not mm-hmm. everybody is able to live independently. I think a lot of people that you know that are on the street, it's a choice they make that they want to live. If you feel free of responsibility and they'd rather you know live on the street, people think they're home. They're homeless because they're forced. They don't have a home. But a lot of them, I'm telling you, a lot of them really prefer to live, you know, on the street, especially in the summer. So, but one of the things I wanted to say was that. Ottawa is a central place in Canada for many reasons. Uh, it draws, it seems to draw people from all over Canada, like especially First Nations people from all over Canada. We see them here in Ottawa. Métis people are also here, and there are also Inuit people here. And uh, it's kind of different First Nations from different parts of country. Our country are here, and we. And I mean, when I worked at Gigno Housing, and you, you, you deal with UCD all the time. You, you you meet these people and they're from they come here for for various reasons but mostly for jobs and now I find that you know demand for housing must be even higher with all you know with the rents going up and and the supply of affordable housing dropping or dwindling because of the increased cost of housing and increasing of rent so it must be even harder now to house people that are that are looking for homes. Uh, I wanted to, maybe you can just talk about the process of, of, of getting into Gigno Housing. There might be people listening to this podcast and and who are in need of a house or in need of a place to rent. You know, they might be interested in how do I apply? Sure. Absolutely. Well, with the, uh, when the housing first started there, we came into an agreement with uh, CMHC, Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation, and they come up with an operating agreement that we rent specifically for, to people of Aboriginal ancestry. Um, and therefore, there's a, an application process. So many times we have people who come in and ask about applying. How long does it take to get in? And, and who decides who gets housing? So there is a committee who are the volunteer board of directors <clears throat> that review the applications after tenant relations officers gather the information, such as the application itself, their income, which is rent year to income. So therefore, your rent would be based on your gross household income. And you also have to provide proof of Aboriginal ancestry. And with that, majority of the times, people will provide their status card or their um, what used to be called an e-card. Now it's called a Nunavut Bush Beneficiary Card and then uh, recognized memberships from the Métis groups, specifically Métis Nation of Ontario. 
And so therefore, when we provide this information, we also do credit checks, landlord reference checks, and then provide this to the committee for review. And then they determine who qualifies for housing. And if you're a family of, say, a single parent with two children, you know, it's typical that you would give them a two bedroom. But if it's a boy and a girl, then, you know, you give them a three bedroom. And one of the um, things that I found working here over the years is that we try to fit families in together who we feel, you know, the compatibility, you know, that families live together so that, you know, they have the same common interests, you know, and also we have seniors that live with us and individuals that live with us, both male and female. So looking at, okay, well, we have a building and a lot of them are older building, older stock. They were purchased in, you know, 80, late 80s, early 90s. And at this time, they, you know, they've become tired buildings. And so when you're thinking about someone with mobility issues, you know, especially uh, someone that's reaching in their senior years, you know, you have to consider where you're going to put them. So in 2001, we um, purchased a building specifically for seniors. There's 11 apartments in that building. So there's an elevator lift in there. So it gives them that opportunity that uh, they can use the elevator lift so that they don't have to always climb stairs. But unfortunately, you know, we're, we're getting to that um, time that where we have more seniors, you know, the baby boomers are all retiring now. So where are we going to put them all? And so it's, it's, it's a little challenging to ensure that we have, you know, the appropriate housing for people. A lot of people have physical ailments that where we don't have a lot of accessible units and therefore, you know, having to turn them away or refer them to the, the larger uh, wait list through the Ottawa Housing Registry. Uh, and then therefore, you know, we can only accom- accommodate so many people. And then in 2010-2011, we uh, got a new building, which is uh, called the Dowin Place at 1043 Cummings. And there's, you know, 28 units in there that are more affordable which is a step up, you know, to uh, rent gear to income because, you know, a lot of people coming here, you know, with good jobs and therefore, you know, providing these units that uh, where they can pay, you know, 80% of the market rent, which is considered affordable market rent. And, you know, being able to do that, we had provided home ownership in the past. We worked with Habitat for Humanity for families to have a house with Habitat for Humanity, and we've housed two families over the years. So we've tried different, you know, opportunities and working with different housing providers to, you know, ensure that, you know, we're we're working together because of this housing crisis right now, that it's, 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 it's really a challenge for many of our people, our First Nations people, because we still are overrepresented in, you know, when it comes to income within the capital of Canada, you know, we have a lot of people that are struggling that are, you know, on benefits. And uh, therefore, you know, we have to maintain this, this housing for our people, because there's just so many of us that are that are still struggling, and, and trying to stay afloat with the high cost of rent. And now even with the high cost of food, it's it's just unbelievable. Right? Yeah. What uh, maybe you can just explain uh, what is the like uh, in terms of priority priority who gets uh, who gets consideration priority consideration? Well, uh, absolutely, the the parents that have children, 
We have a lot of units that are two and three, four bedroom units. Women who are single struggling, parents. single parents that are struggling, even the ones that are suffering domestic violence, you know, there is a criteria that we have to follow in terms of women coming from shelters especially with children. So that would be our top priority. We also, you know, look at applications for seniors. And it always seems so unfair that our single guys that, you know, they're always at the, you know, the bottom of the waiting list at where we have to consider. And and I know that we do need a lot more one-bedroom units because there's a lot of people that are single out there that just can't find, you know, the affordable units so, yeah, that's that's typically how we consider our priority list when it comes to individuals that come to apply with us. Right. You're also a volunteer for a number of boards and communities in Ottawa, such as Midwash and Lodge, Dawa, Native Friendship Centre, the Children's Powwow, City of All Women Initiative, City of Ottawa, Kawi, I guess abbreviation. Maybe you can just talk a little bit about your time as a volunteer for these organizations. And if there's one that you want to specifically mention, talk a little bit about, please go, you know, please, please do. Well, since arriving here in Ottawa, I found that there were a lot more services, you know, available to our community members. And my, my heart has always been with the friendship centers because, and I'll explain that later in my, when I was, um, Growing up as a teenager, coming here in 97, I wanted to be able to use my time wisely and, and, and not become so overwhelmed with the city and what it has to offer. I mean, in terms of, you know, yeah, I'm in my still in my prime, you know, being able to, you know, do I want to just go out there and enjoy the city life and, you know, party, that sort of thing. And sure, you know, that that's fine and dandy, but also at the same time, I also want to utilize my skills, my experiences, and, you know, that what I can do to help the community. And because that's what I am, that's where I come from. My mother was always, uh, you know, a volunteer in our community. So therefore I learned that from her. And even, even a, a woman that a friend of hers, I met them at the Pawa one year and she looks at me and uh, my mom introduces me to her and she says, oh, so are you a volunteer too? And I kind of looked at my mom and she, I said, yes, how did you know? And she said, well, knowing your mother here and all these years, I know that she's been a great volunteer and, and, it, and she's good at what she does. And so I'm thinking, you know, this was after many years of being a volunteer here in Ottawa. The, the one thing that really caught my heart was, you know, helping with the uh, Food for Friends at the Odawa Native Friendship Centre. And that's what right. I've expanded on, working with them and being a volunteer at the Friendship Centre for over 20 years, doing the various events that they've had which includes the children's powwow and then even their May powwow that they have had since, oh gosh, in the 70s. And working working with them every year, helping them out and, you know, learning different things because being able to do that in a community where, you know, it felt so welcoming, you know, just, you know, just even with other places like Minwash and Lodge, you know, being able to meet new people. But I think it's just that feeling of, you know, you, you're, 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 you're wanted, you know, you, you feel like your services are, you know, are, are required and you want to be able to help. Yeah. And I think I just kept 
doing what I love best. And, and I think that's where it gained popularity with other people seeing me, you know, be in the community or volunteering here, volunteering there. And so people just started to recognize me as a volunteer within the community. And yeah. um, the, the best part was at Christmas time, you know, volunteering with the Friendship Center and helping out with the food boxes at Christmas time and helping families out within the community and working for Gignal Nonprofit Housing. There were a lot of our families who were in need. So therefore, I could see that I'd love to help. How can I help, you know, our community members here in the in Ottawa? And one of the things that I saw was doing the uh, food hampers where we would gather up different food items so that they can have a good meal at Christmas time, you know, toys for the kids. And, you know, there's generous donations out there coming from not just within the Indigenous community, but also the non-Indigenous community, the different organizations, the government agencies, um, just individuals that wanted to donate. And so that was the passion that I had um, started to uh, create with, you know, helping out at the Friendship Center, which led into all these other events and also the arts and crafts fundraiser, you know, having having those every year, helping the Friendship Center, you know, fundraising events that really helped bring different events to the community. So that was one of the biggest things that I found was uh, working with them and the children's powwow this year after being in hiatus because of the COVID, we are having it this weekend, March 25th, and just for the one day. Typically, we have it for two days, but this year we can only do it for one because of the late planning that, um, you know, we started to plan it late in the uh, year. So we were able to get a secure location, a venue such, you know, the Shaw Center, which is a pretty huge <laughs> building too. And it's right downtown and that we're able to have that event there. So we had to quickly think of, you know, putting this together at a very short notice. Children's Power, which will have a baby welcoming ceremony. We also have first time dancers. Some years we've had families request to do uh, walking out ceremonies. And then, you know, it's, it's just to, for the children that, you know, living in an urban setting is really, you know, want, wanting to make sure that we, our children are understanding of our culture. And by doing a powwow, it focuses specifically on children. There are many powwows all across Canada every year, but I really don't know if there's anything like ours here where we have a children and youth powwow that specifically focuses on our children and it's really nice to see them at a very young age to start learning about the culture and getting them out there dancing and just to watch them dance and just maybe even some of them don't understand what they're doing but at least you know they're having a good time they're you know being with people that you know it's a good environment a positive environment the adults are there dancing with them and they just kind of follow suit with them, you know, and just learn from them as they're, you know, hearing the sound of the drum. And it's so heartwarming, especially for, you know, you know, hearing that drum, it sounds like your heartbeat, you know, and it just right. brings back a lot of memories of, you know, yeah. being at Powell's at an early age, you know, so I can imagine what these children are going to be, you know, growing up with and thinking, hey, I remember when I was a child, I went to the powwow and this is what we did, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So that's where I think, you know, being, you know, a volunteer within the uh, Friendship Center has brought me to really focus on 
What is it that the community is looking for? What is it that the community um, is in need of, you know, especially being here in the city of Ottawa? We've got so many opportunities that sometimes our smaller communities don't have, you know, and, you know, the resources that are available out there. So that's where, you know, I found that a lot of it where I could use my valuable time to help with our community with such yeah. events. Yeah. I know that when I worked with you at Jingle Housing, uh, helping people like find housing was, you know, such a tremendous feeling, you know, when, when you hand in the keys and, you know, they can, when you know they've been desperately looking for a place. So, and, and that's probably exactly, you know, the feeling you get when you're, when you're doing your volunteer work, you know, you're doing something that is really important to people, you know, it's, it's something that is, that is, that they really want, that they really desire, that they really need. And, and I think that's, you know, you kind of thrive on that feeling of, it's a feeling of accomplishment. It really is because you really are helping people a lot. You know, it may not seem a lot, but it is a lot. It's, it's so rewarding to see people happy in, in those various ways that you talk it's about. That, it, it's that feeling of satisfaction, you know, knowing that you're you're helping somebody. But at right. the same time, for me, you know, like I don't, it's not, it's not something that I take for granted. You know, it's something that I feel that I can do this. And it's not to benefit me, it's to help others as well, you right. know, and that's just something that I've always ingrained in my, in my mind that, you know, it's about helping people. Right. Prior to you moving to Ottawa, you also worked and lived in a couple other places, Moosonee, Ontario, and Iqaluit in Nunavut. Maybe uh, you want to briefly touch on, on your experiences there. Well, when I, I'll start with the Calouet because after I had my son, I moved back to the reserve and I just found that being back home in my twenties, I wasn't really accomplishing much, you know, trying to find a job. I didn't really have much experience. I didn't have much uh, education, you know, to, to get me a good job. So I decided, okay, well, I'm going to go and move to Sudbury so I can go back to school. So I took a business admin course, uh, which took about nine months. We're very condensed and graduated with uh, good marks. And, you know, so there were a number of us from the community, which was very, you know, it really helps when you have people that you know that you can work together to um, ensure that, you know, you're going to stay in school, stay focused, and you help one another out. So when I completed that uh, course, I, I was given the opportunity to visit Iqaluit, uh, Nunavut, and my sister and her family were living there at that time. And she said, why don't you come up here and come visit for a while? And I did and went there for uh, three weeks. And Almost immediately, I was, you know, I got a job for the period that I was there visiting, yeah. and it was a casual job at the hospital. And I thought, oh, hey, this is cool. I mean, I come up here to visit, but I'm making money at the same time. I got myself a little job. Yeah. So when I got the job, they at that time, they were looking for, you know, they had other job openings. And they the one job that was coming up was paying benefits, and it was a paying benefits clerk. And so I uh, said, yeah, sure. I'll think about it. So went back home for a couple of months, thought about it. You know, just the whole idea of moving to the Arctic. It's like, oh my gosh, what am I doing? You know, and being on that plane that day, yeah. I'm looking out and it's like, and there's still snow here. It's like, oh my gosh, yeah. 
doing and thinking different world. it's a different world, totally different world. Cause I, you know, like I, I, I was just still in shock that I actually did it, but if yeah. I was by myself, I don't know if I'd ever do that on my own, but because I had the support from my sister and, and I know that she was lonely up there because she really didn't, you know, being so far away from home and, yeah. and, and friends, that sort of thing, it was really tough on her. And so by having me there, we kept each other company. We, you know, we mm. helped each other out. So yeah. I, I uh, took the job in 1988. Yeah. May 31st when I first went up there and I thought okay well I'll try it I'll I'll, I'll see if I can you know handle a year maybe two mm-hmm. but I ended up staying six years wow six yeah. years and 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 the work that and the people that I met it's just unbelievable you know because a lot of people go up there to work and that's yeah. what the main reason for people being up there and working in the hospital setting I met lots of good people and, you know, became friends with many of them. I also made friends in the community, but it's a different world. It really is a different world. I mean, especially when uh, being First Nations, you didn't know what to expect, you know, working with the uh, Inuit people. I didn't know what to expect, but I was... it's it's totally different people. Like, it's a different culture, right? So It is. It's a different world that they're literally, it's really a different world, different environment. How did you fit in? Like, how, how did you feel being up there? I, I mean, for the most part, I, I felt, I felt like I belonged, you know, but did, there were did, times when I felt, you know, was told that, you know, you have to be careful, you know, being First Nations, you know, sometimes that um, one culture doesn't like the other or whatever, you know, just making sure that you blend in. So yeah. I, I wanted to keep the peace, you know, I wanted to make sure I, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm in their community i'm on their tor- territory so i have yeah. to respect them so you know being given that opportunity to be there so i really enjoyed my time there as you know working as a pay and benefits clerk and then i got promoted to a pay and benefit pay and benefits um supervisor and right. it was the only reason why i moved was that um my son was reaching high school age and so knowing that a lot of parents were talking about, you know, when your your child reaches high school age and you think that they're graduating grade 12, that they're ready for college, university, and you find out you move down south, that they're really not ready. You know, they have to take another year of school. And so I said, I don't know if I want to do that for my son. So I want to make sure that I can um, move him, you know, that he's ready for school. And that was my as being a single parent, that was, you know, something I really had to focus on is that raising him in the right way, you know, making sure that he's at school, you know, graduates, goes to high school, goes to college, university, etc. But, you know, things happen along the way. And then so I left in 94 and decided, okay, I'll move to Moosonee. And that by that time, my sister had, <laughs> they had been transferred out of the Calumet and they moved to Moosonee. So I said, okay, I'll follow her and go back and, and see if she's got a place for me. Well, she did have a house and and uh, so I decided, yeah. okay, I'll rent the house from her and because they had staff housing where they were living. So I said, okay, I'll come and live here. So I managed to get a job at the James Bay General Hospital as a senior accounts officer. And, and I thought, well, you know, I really enjoyed the time at first, but as my son was getting to that teenage years, things were not looking good in the sense of, you know, having to be in a, a small community where being easily influenced and 
he didn't fit in with the kids that were Cree, and then he didn't fit in with kids that are non-Indigenous. So he, you know, he he was well, very troubled at that time. So I decided to, okay, well, this is not a place for us. So let's let's try to find somewhere where we can feel comfortable, welcomed, you know, and 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 I've always wanted to be in Ottawa. So that was the opportunity for, for me to move to Ottawa. So that's why I ended up in Moosonee and in Calhoun was just more for work and also, you know, just to see where I can really fit in. Okay. We're almost out of time here. I've got a couple more questions here, Dolores. Uh, you're also involved. One of the things that I kind of found interesting is that you're involved with the Cantore Native Ministry. Are you still involved with them? And what's your, like, what do you, what do, you do with them? Cantore Native Ministry is a Christian ministry that works with Indigenous people and the Catholic Church. And in terms of my role, I w- I've always been involved with, you know, being very Catholic, I'll say. Um, I've always gone to church. And over the years, it was very difficult to really comprehend, you know, what has happened with our people because of the churches with residential school, etc. So I kind of backed off for a few years. And then I decided, no, this is my, my spiritual, spiritual calling. I'll I'll say. And so what I really feel is that using my Christianity and also learning about my culture and blending the two together, which is that spiritual connection of traditional, my own who I am as a Anishinaabe versus Christianity as what I grew up in. Mm -hmm. So learning to integrate both of them but at the same time, there's still resistance about that. And therefore, you know, my role with the Kateri Native Ministry is that to really, you know, spread the word, like let the people know that, you know what, we are there and we are still here as Anishinaabe people, you know, uh, and, and, and in terms of reconciliation, using, you know, what who we are as uh, Christians that, we, you know, we're good people, you know, we want to do the right thing because of what we were taught about forgiveness and you know in the churches so that's this is just coming from my personal belief and 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 it's taught me a lot and then therefore you know using my Anishinaabe traditions and culture to bring those two together so what i found with Kateri Native Ministry is is that's what we're bringing to the community there still are a lot of people who may not accept that but Everybody's going to be different, you know, so, but as long as we're reaching out to people that really want that, because there are still a number of people that um, are not really understanding who they are as um, First Nations people, but, you know, still practice their, their uh, Christianity, their Catholic faith. Right. Yeah. My grandfather uh, worked with, worked in the church later on in life uh, as a lay, lay minister. I had a, I, I struggled with that, actually, uh, you know, uh, growing up in that environment. But later on, then I started to realize that it's not so, it's not really that important that, you know, that you just follow the traditional ways. And uh, it's, if you feel comfortable doing it through either the Catholicism or, uh, or Anglican or whatever, you know, Muslim, you know, uh, I think it, it, it's pretty much to me, it's all the same being a good person and doing good things in your life. 
And I think that uh, you mentioned it's part of like right now we're going through, you know, a process of a change, I hope, and I kind of feel it across Canada with the indigenous people and our relationship with the colonizers, I think you should call them, mm-hmm. the, the white settlers. And there's a buzzword that's going around, you know, uh, reconciliation. And I wanted to ask you, you know, on a, on a final note, what your feelings are about reconciliation, what it means to you. We have a long way to go. And there's right. lots of work that's involved. But also at the same time, I want to be able to achieve a relationship to renew my language and my culture and who I am as an individual as an Anishinaabe, but also at the same time, you know, being able to share that information, share that awareness with people that I meet. And because of who I was as a child, being very drawn back and very intimidated, very felt ridiculed and ashamed, etc. So I'm trying to change that so that I can bring out, you know, my inner talents, my inner gifts that I have to be able to share that with people that I that I meet along my path of life. And, and, and so therefore, I'm hoping that with reconciliation, I'm able to do that. If it's not a lot of people, as long as I can reach a few people in my life that, you know, to really understand that who I am, and that what I'm prepared to, you know, share along my my journey. And to People, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this path of life that we are not, you know, we're not all the same. We are all unique individuals. And so we'll always come across people that, you know, people that we meet along the way that may not be there, you know, may not be there for us. But also there are people that are there for us. So I think it's just it's just a matter of who we meet in our life. Right. Yeah. 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 I've been talking to Dolores Peltier-Corky. Uh, she's originally from Wikwimikong First Nation. And uh, I want to thank you, Dolores, on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation for taking the time to do this with us. Dolores, you're, you know, you're, you're a real great community leader. You know, you're, uh, you're ambitious. See you as a role model, helping people. You know, you're a good, per- good parent, responsible person. And, you know, you're a good example uh, to for many people to follow and uh, I want to thank you again you know very much for doing this with us taking the time to do this with us miigwech miigwech minoba mods win i'll say the good life miigwech thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of roots and hoots produced by the legacy of hope foundation music for roots and hoots is provided by david finkel these stories interest or inspire you and you would like to hear more please like subscribe and leave a review podcasts are available through podbean spotify apple and google podcasts and can also be found through our website at www.legacyofhope.ca